So this morning, we will be looking at Matthew 4, 12 through 22. And this is, yeah, a good story. I preached on it a little differently about three years ago um, this time. This is part of the lectionary. Part of, so churches all over the world are dealing with this text um, today. So uh, we are too. And uh, the, the words will be behind me on the screen. They'll be on your screen. If you've got them with you, you can follow along that way as well. Um, so Matthew 4, 12 through 22. Before we read, let's pray together. God, once again, as we open up this book, um, we pray that you would open us up. Holy Spirit, that you would do that you would do whatever it is you do, however it is you do it. Um, opening our hearts, our minds, helping us to uh, to connect with you. Give us eyes that see, give us ears that hear, ears that hear your voice. In Jesus' name, Amen. So when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We'll go that far. So, we're going to begin this morning by listening to uh, part of a poem. It's a poem that I am certain uh, you have heard before, and you will hear it again uh, after today. Um, it's one of those poems that seemingly will be with us uh, for forever. It's, it's a poem about a man traveling through the woods, coming to a fork in the road, right? He looks at one, then he looks at the other, uh, and it seems as though one of, one of the roads has a better reputation than the other one, because it's been traveled a lot, like it's well-traveled. Right? So he thinks about his decision. He's got a decision to make. Which road? Which, which way do I go? Uh, and the, then the poem, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, ends like this. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I? I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So the scripture we read just a few moments ago begins when a man leaves his home one day 
It begins an adventure. He, he essentially takes the road less traveled. And in the story, it's such a small little detail that we might actually miss it if we're not paying attention because Matthew doesn't, doesn't really make a big deal out of it, but, but it's there. He simply writes, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the sea. He left Nazareth. He left. He up and left. Something happened inside of him that caused him to, to pack up his stuff and leave home. Think about that for a moment. A young man about 30 years old right, who works in a carpenter's shop who's responsible for the care of his widowed mother and younger brothers and sisters announces one day that he's leaving. I'm going. He's leaving the business. He's leaving the safety and security of a regular income. He's leaving the care of his family. He's leaving. He's leaving home. He's leaving it all behind. Why? Why? What causes a young man like that to drastically alter his life, shake things up so big, and take on a new mission, take on a whole new purpose in his life? Well, maybe for Jesus, he remembered his baptism, which we talked about last week. Maybe he, remembered, maybe he remembered that feeling, that experience of the heavens opening up and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and, and he swore he heard that voice, you are my beloved, my son. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe he remembered that. Maybe he felt deep down that the Father was now up to something new, different in his life. He'd sensed it for a really long time. Something happening in here, God is doing something, but now he was just beginning to understand it in a way that he could actually verbalize it and talk about it and maybe even act upon it. Maybe he remembered the words from Isaiah, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, a light bulb goes off. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So he's beginning to sense all of a sudden that God's reign in this world was close at hand. That God's kingdom wasn't just passive, out there somewhere, but active, powerful, table-turning, world-changing. That God's reign in this world, God's rule in this world was actually a revolutionary thing. Right? So he went around and started talking about it. He started preaching about it. He started, he started teaching about it. And his message was clear, and Matthew gives it to us. It's really simple. Repent which means turn around. I like to think of it as lean into this thing I'm telling you about. Face it. Walk into it. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's his message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. God's reign in this world isn't done from some remote place up there way up high in the heavens. No, no, no. It's near. It's close at hand. Look for it. Watch for it. Participate in in it. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is close at hand. That was his basic, most profound message. But what in the world does that mean? Oh, we could spend like hours talking about this. What does it mean? The kingdom of heaven is near. How can we think about it? Well, Dallas Willard, one of the deepest, most profound yet practical thinkers of our time, he's gone now. He died a few years ago. That makes me sad because he wrote a whole ton of books that are amazing. All of them you could read in, in 
and feel good. But anyway, he wrote this book called The Divine Conspiracy, which if I had to pick five books, it would make my top five books that profoundly changed me as a person and the way that I think about God and Jesus and church and following Jesus. This, this would be in my top five, maybe my top two. It's that good. It's a thick, dense book. It's not a super easy read, but you are all smart people. You could do it if you wanted to. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. Has anybody read that book? We got, got a couple. That's good. So challenge, The Divine Conspiracy. Super good. Okay, anyway, in the book, The Divine Conspiracy, he gives us this way to, to think about what it means for the kingdom of God to be near, to be close of heaven, the kingdom of heaven to be close at hand. So he remembers a time when he lived on his family farm and they had no electricity, right? So he, he, he's from that generation, right? So then in his senior year of high school, the electric company brought lines into the area which meant electricity became available for the, for the households and farms in his area. And I want you to listen to how he describes it. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living pre- presented itself. Think about that. A very different way of living presented itself. Our relationship to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot, cold, clean, and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food, preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and then take practical steps involved in relying on it. He goes on. You may think the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it is, but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heavens if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent, electricity is close at hand. Repent, or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns turn from their ice boxes and cellars, turn from their scrub boards and rug beaters, turn from their human-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right near them, where by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. The reign of God. The rule of God kingdom of heaven. It's close at hand. It's right here. It's near. It's closer than we ever imagined. It's not passive, up there, out there somewhere. It's it's active, powerful, table-turning, world-changing, revolutionary. Repent. Lean into it. Look for it. Watch for it participate in it, for it's right here. That's Jesus' basic message. It's right here. To all the world, it's right here. Lean into it. Then he goes on and he wants to invite other people into it. 
He starts talking about it. He walks along the shoreline to the Sea of Galilee and he notices these two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. He says, follow me. Simple. Two words. He just walks up to them and says, follow me. And at once, Matthew tells us, they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. They left their nets. Just like Jesus, leaving the safety and security of home. They left the safety and security of their job, their, all of that. They just left. They left it behind and followed him. Then he goes on a little further and sees two other brothers, James and John, the sons of De- Zebedee. They're in the boat with their dad, Zebedee. And he's like, follow me, he says. And immediately they left their father and followed him. Now, for most of us, like it didn't happen like that. Right? For most of us, for those of us here in this place that, that believe, it didn't happen exactly like that. Most of us came to be who we are and where we are through like this long process of discernment and wondering and struggling. Like faith and God's calling on our lives didn't just suddenly appear out of nowhere. Right? For most of us, our faith and our calling in life and who we think God wants us to be and is calling to be, it was a bit more complex than just follow me, and they left their nets and followed him. Right? But at some point, at some point, we decided to believe. Right? Now for us rational people, how many of us would consider ourselves to be rational people? For us rational people, so that's like nearly all of us. That's good. But, but it presents something here. Um, because for us rational people, we're inclined to define religious faith sort of intellectually up here. Uh, a list of ideas about God that we adhere to, that we hold to be true. Uh, and faith is like a certain set of beliefs and an adherence to, uh, to certain creeds, certain confessions, right? Because this makes things a lot more easy, way easier. A lot, it makes things a lot a lot more neat and a lot tight, a lot more tidy and, and, and a lot less messy, right? Because if that's all that faith is, a list of ideas about God, a list of creeds and confessions that we adhere to, then, then it makes it really easy to distinguish between who's in and who's, and who's not in, who's out. It makes it really easy for us to distinguish who's going to make the final cut when all is said and done on this earth for all of us. You know, that day that when we all die, we know who's going where and, and how that's all going to work out. If that's all that, that faith is, we can sort of have a, a great grand old time just sort of sitting around and arguing about, about whose set of beliefs are better and more true and, and more right and whose isn't, right? And the church has been really good at spending its time doing that for the past 2,000 years and, and not getting as much done in this world as we probably probably could because we're sitting around arguing about who's right and who's wrong about all sorts of different things and it gets really frustrating not that that stuff isn't important i think it's really important and adherence to a set of creeds and confessions i think is vitally important because what we believe about about god and who god is is central to our faith like if i didn't believe that then i wouldn't be here i'm i make a living thinking, learning, talking, teaching about this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's important. And look, we're connected with the Reformed Church in America. And if you grew up in the Reformed Church or around Reformed people, then you know without a shadow of a doubt that we're supposed to love God with all our mind. Like 
we have the best ideas about God. And we're proud of it. And we will let you know. I'll never forget growing up in the church and sitting in Sunday school and memorizing and reciting to one another questions and answers to the Heidelberg Catechism. How many of you know what the Heidelberg Catechism even is? Okay. That's about half, maybe. Right? Some of you remember doing that. Right? But I think we all need to remember I think this is so important. I think we all need to remember that the whole thing began not with a set of beliefs to adhere to. Not with a a list of ideas about God that we needed to believe in in order to be in. The whole thing, somewhere along the line, that's what we were taught. That's what we were given. That faith is about believing the right things about God and the Bible and the world. And if you believe those things, welcome to the club. I think it would do, especially Jesus' people in the West, I think it would be very important for us to remember that the whole deal started not with a set of beliefs to adhere to, not with a, not with a creed. The whole thing began with an invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus walks by these four fisher people and he says to them, come, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Follow me. Notice Jesus' invitation. The whole thing began not with a listen to me, not with a believe in me, The whole thing began not with a bow down, worship me. The whole thing began not with a, hey, let's take a course in systematic theology and I'll give you all the things you need to believe about God in order for you to be a part of this thing that I'm about to do. No, no, no. The whole thing began with Jesus saying, follow me. Come, follow me. Faith begins by walking. Not believing. Faith begins by walking. Faith begins by following immediately. These four men left what they were doing and followed him. They left. They left what they were doing. Okay, I didn't plan on doing this, but all of a sudden I'm going to do this. This is scary. This isn't part of my message. I've had to do that. Have you had to do that before? Like leave stuff behind because you really want to follow. I've had to leave certain beliefs behind. Um... I've had to, I've, as, I've, as I've tried my best to follow, I've had to leave certain beliefs behind. Beliefs that were given to me by good and beautiful and bright people who wanted nothing but the best for me in my life, in my faith journey. And at the time, it wound up being really good. But as I, as I followed, I realized that some of those beliefs just didn't fit where Jesus was going anymore. As I learn more about the world and how things work, and I learn from people who are different from me, 
I had to leave some things behind, some beliefs about God, especially some, some beliefs about the Bible and what it is. I've had to leave some of that stuff behind, and that's hard, and it's scary. Oh, but it's so good. Is there anything you need to leave behind? Is there anything you're wondering about maybe you need to, to leave behind? Talk to somebody about it, because it's best to do that in community. It's best to do that with other people because it's really hard and lonely if you don't. Is there anything you need to let go of to leave behind? Immediately, they left their nets. Immediately, they left home. Their father followed him. And then we read a little bit further on, and and we see that Jesus took them all throughout Galilee, doing all sorts of really, really cool things. He immediately got busy walking, teaching in the synagogues, curing diseases, teaching people about the kingdom of heaven, associating with people that he wasn't, associate, wasn't supposed to associate with, embracing the people that oh, nobody else would embrace, including them in his little circle of friends and his movement. Right? Jesus was a walking prophet, a walking representative and spokesman for the Father, and his disciples were going to have to keep moving too, leaving more things behind if they were going to keep up with their new master. Right? So friends, to follow Jesus is to accept this invitation with passion and purpose. It's to set a course in the direction of Jesus. It might not require walking anywhere, but it does demand the investment of your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And look, this doesn't mean you have to give up your career and go to seminary. You don't have to do that. Because, and I think we all know this, God calls us within the context of our everyday, ordinary lives. Like, not necessarily when we're being all religious-y and we're singing Jesus songs and we're praying. I believe God calls us while we're at our nets. These These dudes were at work. They were working. They were at the place where they spend most of their time living their lives. So God calls us in the places where where we spend most of our time. He says, follow me here. And for most of us, that's at work, that's at school, and at home. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Most of the, God calls us to follow him when we're out there, where we spend most of our time. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean, because for some reason, a lot of us feel like this is what it means. This is what it doesn't mean. We don't have to be like Christian nags out there in the world, like constantly criticizing what everyone else is doing. Like, we don't have to be, we don't have to be the Jesus police, right? It's not our job to to set up a, a Christian nation in order to to force everybody else to do what we think they ought to do and live how we think they ought ought to live. If that's what Jesus wanted, he would have done it himself. Like, he would have become king. He would have taken the throne. God in the flesh would have figured out a way to push the Romans out of Israel so that they could set up their kingdom like everyone wanted him to. If God wanted that, he would have done it himself when he had the chance and he was walking around on this planet. Right? So if that's not what it looks like, well, what does it look like then? 
Well, what did Jesus do? He did things subversively. He did things underneath the surface. He lived his life. He, he included the people who were excluded. He healed people who were broken. He put people's lives back together again. He gave people light and love and life again. But he did it underneath the surface, subversively. It wasn't this top-down, powerful, you have to live like this kind of a thing. That's not how Jesus worked. Listen to Dallas Willard. He says, this is how we do it. We have a gentle but firm non-cooperation with things that everyone knows to be wrong. Together with a sensitive, non-intrusive service to others, that should be our usual overt manner. This should be combined with inward attitudes of constant prayer for whatever kind of activity our workplace requires and genuine love for everyone involved. What if that was, oh, that could change things. A genuine love for everyone involved. So here's the deal. Jesus doesn't need all of us to like give up our jobs and and, and I'll suddenly do what I do and, and be pastors. Right? If you all did that and went to seminary and became pastors, that would be weird because then we would just probably sit around and talk about who knows more about God and we could make a list. And God doesn't need, doesn't need that. But God says to you, follow me right where you are. Follow me right where you are. Where you spend most of your time Jesus needs faithful people who are police officers and fire people. Jesus needs excellent engineers. Jesus needs caring school teachers now more than ever in these unprecedented times. Jesus needs caring school teachers and amazing professors, loving parents. Gentle salespeople, honorable retail workers, fantastic farmers. Jesus needs all sorts of people. Jesus needs you to follow him wherever you are. And when you follow Jesus wherever it is you are, people around you will experience the kingdom of heaven because they will have, have bumped up against it in you. The kingdom of heaven will have come in you and through you. And when they experience the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they may just decide to follow too. I should be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Let's pray.